0: This podcast episode contains quotes from original sources and may include language considered offensive today.
1: Hello, and welcome back to Banjo's Drinks and Drinking Boards, How America Culture Came to Be, the podcast of the Frontier Culture Museum of Virginia. I'm Alex.
0: And I'm Rachel. And today I start with the preamble of the Declaration of Independence. that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This brilliant writing, this catchy phrase with Lockean, biblical, and enlightenment sentiments, captures the revolutionary spirit and beliefs of a time and place perfectly. These are powerful sentiments, and it begs a question, and a question that is not only hard to phrase, but very hard to answer. So Alex, first
1: off, what is your question? The question Did this revolutionary spirit and language, these beliefs in natural rights, the belief that all men are created equal, have any influence or change among this revolutionary generation in regards to slavery? Did the Revolutionary War and its outcome change the debate on slavery in regards to how the average person thought of the subject? And basically, did more people begin to have negative views of slavery? Now, we did two podcasts on abolition before the Revolutionary War, focusing on the colonies and in Britain. Sadly, there were very few abolitionists at this time, but the few people like Thomas Clarkson, Granville Sharp, the Quakers of Pennsylvania in particular, Anthony Benzay, were very committed to ending slavery. They were not the only ones. Some of the others included George Whitfield. Um, the English itinerary preacher who toured the colonies in the 1740s and helped spark the Great Awakening spoke forcefully against slavery. So we wanted to look at abolition in the Revolutionary War period. And here is the hard part of the question, as it seems there is no easy answer to that question because the events leading to the war and the war itself had so many moving parts, it becomes very hard to make head or tails of the situation.
0: Especially as taking the long view, the war did not change the situation at all. As we all know, slavery continued to grow, and it takes until the Civil War to actually end the institution. Yet we also know the debate on slavery and the abolition movement grew tremendously from the Revolutionary War onwards. Like all history, it's very complicated and very compelling. Still, we have three examples of how this revolutionary talk of natural rights did have a positive result in the long struggle to end slavery.
1: Now, before we talk about these cases, we have to give a few more examples of this revolutionary talk. Here is another famous speech from Patrick Henry. If we were base enough to desire it, it is now too late to retire from the contest. There is no retreat but in submission and slavery. Our changes are forged. Their clanking may be heard on the plains of Boston. The war is inevitable, and let it come. I repeat, sir, let it come. It is in vain, sir, to... Extenuate this matter. Gentlemen may cry, peace, but there is no peace. The war is actually begun. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand here idle? What is that gentleman wish? What would they have? Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know what course others might take, but as for me, give me liberty or death, spoken at St. John's Episcopalian Church in Richmond at the Second Virginia Convention on March 20th, 1775, by Henry to propose raising a militia independent of royal authority as the war with Britain was inevitable. Or did he? As no one wrote down his speech, and Henry, unlike Jefferson, never saved his speeches. The copy of this speech first appears in an autobiography of Henry in 1870, by William Work, based on the recollections of Judge George Tucker, who heard the original speech but wrote it down years later.
0: In May 1754, a Boston Assemblyman insisted, quote, If taxes are laid upon us in any shape without having a legal representation where they are laid, are we not reduced from the character of free subjects to the miserable state of tributary slaves? End quote. George Washington wrote on the British aims of the colonies, quote, make us as tame and abject slaves as blacks we rule over with such arbitrary sway, end quote. John Adams in 1765 denounced the British and declared, quote, we won't be their Negroes, end quote.
1: We can go on and on as there are hundreds of quotes from the revolutionary generation claiming how Parliament was trying to make them slaves. We are not going to focus on the hypocrisy, as many of the individuals writing these words were slave owners. However, and this is crystal clear, the writers and speakers, slave owners and non-slave owners, when using the word slavery, meant it as being bad and being a negative. The Virginians, for the most part, had this unique position that slavery was bad, and it was the British government who forced slavery upon us. Patrick Henry again, quote, slavery was in repugnant to humanity as it is inconsistent with the bible and destructive to liberty End quote
0: now we come to thomas jefferson who by his writings was all over the map when it came to slavery so it's very hard to actually pin him down onto what he really thought about slavery and africans while writing the declaration of independence he elaborated more forcefully the idea that the whole slave issue was the fault of the british he has waged cruel war against human nature itself violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere, or to incur miserable death in their transportation thither. This piratical warfare, the opprobrium of infidel powers, is the warfare of the Christian king of Great Britain. Determined to keep open a market where men should be bought and sold, he has prostituted his negative for suppressing every legislative attempt to prohibit or restrain this execrable commerce and that this assemblage of horrors might want no fact of distinguished die. He is now exciting those very people to rise in arms among us and to purchase that liberty of which he has deprived them by murdering the people on whom he has obtruded them, thus paying off former crimes committed against the liberties of one people with crimes which he urges them to commit against the lives of another. What I just read was included in the first version of the Declaration of Independence, but was removed because of the other state's opposition. There's a great scene in the musical 1776 about this, when South Carolina protests heavily
1: against that. Yet
0: yeah, what Jefferson actually wrote encapsulates perfectly the viewpoint that we are not to blame for the evils of slavery, but since we don't know how to get rid of the institution, we better make the best of the situation. Patrick Henry, again, wrote along the same lines, quote, drawn along to keep his own slaves because he could not deny the general inconveniency of living without them, end quote. He never freed any of his slaves.
1: Jefferson, who in his life owned over 600 slaves, only freed two in his lifetime. Quote, for shame, let us either cease to enslave our fellow men or else let us cease to complain of those that would enslave us, unquote. From the Reverend Nathan Nile in 1774. All the Enlightenment talk of liberties and natural rights and how the British were trying to enslave all the colonies did produce substantial pushback from abolitionists and the British on the fact the colonies were slave societies. Benjamin Rush, a famous doctor and patriot, wrote, quote, unless for us to announce the servitude to which Parliament of Great Britain wishes to reduce us while we continue to keep our fellow creatures in slavery just because their color is different from us, unquote. The
0: Quaker abolitionist and prolific writer Anthony Benizek and star of our first podcast on early abolitionists in the American colonies, was very active in the 1770s and 1780s until his death in 1784, writing on the evil of slavery and petitioning the Continental Congress to pass legislation ending the slave trade and slavery itself. In a letter to Elias Boudinot, he wrote, quote, But how strange it is to see the southern colonies take such a lead in what they call the cause of liberty, whilst the most horrible, Oppressions, even under the sanction of their laws, is continually practiced among them. Benazet begins to use the prevailing Enlightenment sentiment of the time in his writings quote, Liberty is the right of every human creature as soon as he breathes the vital air, and no human law can deprive him of that right which derives from the law of nature. End quote.
1: Now we turn to Britain and the English writer Samuel Johnson who was appalled by the colonists' likened Parliament's small new taxes to slavery. Quote, how is it that we hear the loudest yelps for liberty among the drivers of Negroes? Unquote. And Ambrose Sorrell, quote, such men are no enemies to absolute rule. They only hate it in others, but ardently pursue it for themselves. Unquote. Now, a ruling from Britain's highest court added a new wrinkle in the slavery debate in the case of Somerset v. Stewart. Charles Stewart, a custom official from Boston, brought his slave with him when visiting London. The enslaved man, James Somerset, sued for freedom with help from an abolitionist lawyer after Stewart tried to sell him to a Jamaica planter. The case was decided by Lord Mansfield in 1772, who ruled that slavery has no basis in natural law or common law. Slavery required positive law, a statute passed by Parliament to legitimate the system in England. Since no positive law existed in England, therefore Somerset was not required to travel to Jamaica. This was a narrow verdict, but it was interpreted in the southern colonies that any slave that set foot in England was automatically free. This started a new outcry against Britain and the disrespect they have of the liberties of the colonists. Consequently, the colonists, really southern colonists, felt that this ruling suggested that the property system Defied English traditions of liberty, hence the colonists were backwards people for not following English laws. I mean, they weren't really wrong. Now we come to Lord Dunmore's proclamation,
0: the promise of freedom to enslave men if they fight for the British. The policy did not go well, and the Ethiopian regiment suffered tremendously, not because of fighting, but because of smallpox. Yet this one policy did more in the South to unite plantation owners and white people against Britain. As South Carolinian Edward Rutland wrote, quote, more effectively work an internal separation between Great Britain and the colonies than any other expedient which could possibly be thought of, end quote. While all of this talk was going, Britain and the colonists were inching closer to war. While well, sticking to the original question, we have did the language of the revolution begin to change the debate on slavery? The answer is yes. The topic was debated in newspapers, in the new state assemblies, in the Continental Congress. The growth of the abolition movement rose in leaps and bounds from this point onward. The states of New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, New York, Connecticut, Rhode Island, and New Jersey all passed gradual emancipation laws during the revolutionary era or shortly afterwards. While this is not really the result many abolitionists like Anthony Benizet wanted, the laws were pushing the elimination of slavery in these states forward. Yet, there was a case where the revolutionary and enlightenment language did have a direct impact on slavery in a certain
1: state. Now we turn to Massachusetts and their constitution, which was written in the late 1770s and ratified in 1780. The primary author was John Adams, then this was the last of the initial 13 US states to be written. The constitution was broken down into a preamble, declaration of rights, and the principles and framework of government. The convention was called to draft the constitution, and the finished version was voted on by male voters, and I assume these are male voters who own property, and are 21 years of age. This Constitution served as the model for the federal Constitution seven years later.
0: There was no mention of slavery in the Massachusetts Constitution, nor was there any action among the legislature to curtail or even suggest gradual emancipation. The Massachusetts legislature in 1771 debated a bill to emancipate the enslaved, but it was shot down by many of the leading patriots worried that it would have a bad effect on the union of the colonies. Yet in the Declaration of Rights, the following was written, very much in the language and tone of the Declaration of Independence. Article 1. All men are born free and equal and have certain natural, essential, and unalienable rights, among which may be reckoned the right of enjoying and defending their lives and liberties, that of acquiring, possessing, and protecting property, in fine, that of seeking and obtaining their safety
1: and happiness. A year later, 1781, an interesting case came to the court in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. A year later, 1781, an interesting case came to the court in Great Barrington. An enslaved woman named Mum Brett, who was owned by Colonel John Ashley, was cooking a meal in the kitchen with her sister, also an enslaved woman, and Colonel Ashley's wife. An incident occurred between Miss Ashley and Mum Brett's sister. Miss Ashley took a fire shovel and was about to hit the sister when Brett protected her sister and received the blow from the shovel on her head causing burns and a scar. Mumbret was furious and walked away from the house and refused to return. Colonel Ashley contacted the sheriff and she was arrested. A young lawyer, Thomas Sedgwick, an abolitionist took the case to represent Mumbrett. Sedgwick was hoping to use the case to challenge the constitutionality of slavery in Massachusetts, using the language of the new state constitution and the language of the revolution. The case went before an all white jury and they won. The court granted Mum Brent her freedom and required Colonel Ashley to pay her 30 shillings or 5 pounds. Mum Brent, on hearing the news, changed her name to Elizabeth Freeman.
0: Now, a few years later, another case came to the courts, and it concerns the case of an enslaved man called walk Walker who sued his master for false imprisonment. He won the case and was immediately granted his freedom and was awarded a sum of 50 pounds. His master was then subject to a criminal prosecution for assault and battery against Walker and was found guilty and fined two pounds. The appeal of the verdicts made it to the Supreme Court of Massachusetts where the court upheld the Mumbrat, now Elizabeth Freeman case, as well as the Walker case. Slavery lost all legal protection in Massachusetts and henceforth it was effectively abolished in the state. The case for the language of the revolution was the reasoning for the decisions the court made in regards to slavery.
1: Now we look to Virginia and into particular one person, Robert Carter III. Carter was the grandson of Robert King Carter, one of the most successful planters and influential people in colonial Virginia. King Carter served in almost every capacity in the colony, including acting as governor from 1726 to 1727. When King Carter died in 1732, he owned 300,000 acres of land, 3,000 slaves, and had 10,000 pounds in cash at hand. Soon after King Carter died, his son, also called Robert, died, leaving a grandson. And you guessed it, also called Robert. The young Robert was raised by his uncles and mother and educated at William and Mary. Upon reaching legal age, Carter owned 6,500 acres and 100 slaves. Carter married Frances Ann Tasker in 1754, and they had 17 children, 12 who lived to adults. Their principal residence was Normandy Hall in the Northern Neck part of Virginia. Carter was one of the wealthiest planters in the state. Carter, as well as being a planter, was a lawyer and served on the Virginia councils for 20 years. Carter was a reluctant patriot and in 1772 announced his retirement from public life. He always supported the patriots, but his heart was not in the struggle, and he played a passive role in the part of the Revolutionary War.
0: Carter was a typical planter, but there were a few quirks about his life. He was known for treating his enslaved persons well. He almost never bought an enslaved person and rarely ever sold one. He tended to keep families together and his plantation had the highest natural increase of enslaved people. He also never slept with his slaves, allegedly, and was supposedly faithful to his wife. He was an avid reader, mostly religious tracts, and was searching for spiritual awareness. He had a mystical experience while fevers from the smallpox inoculation and started attending dissenter services, Quakers, Methodists, Presbyterians, and Baptists. This caused scorn in Virginia from his neighbors and fellow planters. Eventually, he was baptized by full immersion and joined the Moradico Baptist Church. This church had a mixed congregation of whites, blacks, and enslaved people. Carter enjoyed the fact that everyone sat together and all were considered equal before God. Yet, as the war went on and the dissenting religions gained acceptance of Virginia, the Baptist churches began to segregate seatings or only accepted white members. Carter was not happy with this development and left the church.
1: Andrew Levy, who wrote The First Emancipator, Slavery, Religion, and the Quiet Revolution of Robert Carter, calls Carter the anti-Jefferson. They were both planters, wealthy. Carter was humble. There is only one portrait ever done of him, and it was done in London when he was a young man of 21. And while he kept a journal and wrote it every day, it mainly deals with the running of the plantation. Levy writes, quote, if Carter is the anti-Jefferson the man who did not lack the will to free his own slaves, but who did lack the vision and clarity to make his love of freedom eloquent, then the deed of gift is the anti-declaration of independence, a document that makes liberty look dull, but is absent of the loopholes and contradictions that no result of liberty could prevail, unquote. So it is hard to say when Carter began thinking of manumitting and his slaves, or what brought him to this conclusion. There are hints in his journals that this was a long-held belief and not a sudden impulse. His younger children were educated in the North, away from Richmond, in order for them to get away from slave society. He was a deeply religious man, and it is clear that religion, and not the revolutionary rhetoric, brought him to this decision. The Deed of Gift was written in the summer of 1791, three years after his wife had died, and he was 63 years old.
0: Now the key part of the deed of gift is the timing. Virginia only allowed the manumission of enslaved persons by owners in 1782. This act was part of the revolution rhetoric of the times and over the next 10 years, 10,000 enslaved people were freed. Virginia economy was in shambles because of the war and there was a belief that slavery might be dying. However, in 1794, the Haitian revolution occurs and there was a blowback to manumission and the laws began to make this harder. If Carter tried to free his enslaved persons later on in the decade, he most likely would have failed. Carter at this time owned 452 enslaved persons on 20 plantations across a broad swath of Virginia. The deed of gift was reported in the Northumberland District Court on September 5th, 1791. Carter writes in the first paragraph of the deed, quote, I have for some time past been convinced that to retain them in slavery is contrary to the true principles of religion and justice, and that therefore it was my duty to manumit them, end quote. And this is the extent of Carter explaining himself on why he was doing this. Carter wrote in his journal for the day, quote, This day, Mr. William Spearman brought a sample of brandy, 15 gallons, which is equal to 17 gallons of the rum now in the house. Note, Mr. Spearman is to bring 20 gallons of such brandy mentioned above, the price of which is to be fixed according to the proof by Mr. Thomas Collins and Mr. Francis Smith, end quote. The day you put the deed to man, you met 452 enslaved people, and that's what you write? Talking about brandy?
1: The deed of gift is a gradual emancipation worked out to fine detail. There was a schedule and timing of when the slaves were to gain their freedom, with the oldest slaves being granted their freedom first. Now, we are not going to go into the ins and outs of how the process worked, but over the next decade, all the enslaved people did gain their freedom. There was much opposition and complications to get the necessary paperwork in accomplishing the deed, including a much opposition from his children and his friends. So much so Carter moved to Baltimore in part for his safety. He lived a plain life still searching for the perfect religious experience, but getting poorer as the years went by. He died in 1804 and his body was brought back to Nominee where he was buried in an unmarked grave near a tree. Nominee burned to the ground mid 19th century and Carter became a footnote in a very interesting time. Yet he emancipated more slaves than anyone until the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. He truly was a remarkable man and really should be more widely known in the Revolutionary period.
0: Now we come to Edward Coles, who was born in 1786 in Albemarle County in Virginia. So technically not a part of the Revolutionary generation, yet because of his family connections, Coles socially knew and interacted with the Revolutionary elites. Coles was a neighbor and worked with Thomas Jefferson, James Monroe, and James Madison. Coles was the youngest of ten siblings and was educated at home. Eventually, he attended William and Mary. While at William & Mary, he asked the president of the college, Reverend James Madison, not the president, and Bishop of Virginia, quote, can the owning of men be justified, end quote. Later, Coles wrote, saying that Reverend Madison, quote, frankly admitted it could not be rightfully done and that slavery was a state of thing that could not be justified on principle and could only be tolerated in our country by finding it in existence and difficulty of getting rid of it, end quote. His answer is similar to the thinking of George Washington and Jefferson, among many others, as mentioned early in this podcast. Jefferson was very concerned free blacks would riot against the former slave owners, thereby justifying their continued circumstances they'd like to riot against. It's logic, kind of.
1: Now, Coles took this message to heart and decided not to become a slaveholder or live where slavery was legal. Yet he kept this opinion from his family, and when his father died in 1808, Coles inherited a 782-acre plantation with 12 slaves. Coles began to emancipate his slaves, much to his family opposition. Yet the laws of emancipation had changed in Virginia in 1806, which required newly freed slaves to leave the state within the year. He also became aware of many free slaves manumitted by his uncles, who were living close to starvation levels, and he put his plan on hold. His new plan was to sell the plantation and move to the new Northwest Territories. Coles took a slight detour of this plan as he was unable to find any buyers for his plantation, and in 1810, he became President James Madison's Presidential Secretary. While secretary, he corresponded and met Jefferson, Adams, and most of the founding fathers of the country. He resigned his position in 1815 and once again looking to free his slaves. However, once again, his career got in its way, and Madison sent him to Russia to solve a diplomatic incident concerning a Russian cancel's arrest for raping a maid in Philadelphia. Coles then managed to tour a few European countries and England. Coles then wrote a paper comparing Russian serfdom to American slavery.
0: When Coles got back, he bought land in the Illinois Territory, sold his plantation to his brother, and did a remarkable deed for the time. He manumitted his slaves, but not only that, he provided land for them in Illinois so they could work and prosper. Cole was very secretive about his plans to the slaves. He sent his trusted enslaved person, Ralph Crawford, with 16 other people, six adults, and 11 children. He met them at Brownsville, Pennsylvania, where the party boarded some flat boats floating on the Monongahela and then the Ohio River. When the party was west of Pittsburgh, Cole's announced his plans, and he wrote of this, Quote, I called on the deck of the boats, which was lashed together, all the Negroes, for me to make known to them what I intended to do with them. I proclaimed in the shortest and fullest manner possible that they were no longer slaves but free, free as I was, and were at liberty to proceed with me or to go ashore at their pleasure. The effect on them was electrical. In breathless silence they stood before me, unable to utter a word, but with countenances beaming with expression, with no, which no words could convey and which no language can now describe, end quote. The River Emancipation became the subject of a mural of the South Hall of the Illinois State Capitol. Coles gave each head household 160 acres and provided employment and ongoing support for all of the enslaved people he freed. A few years later, he won the governorship of Illinois in 1822 and was very instrumental in making sure Illinois was slave-free. Coles corresponded often with Thomas Jefferson, begging him to free his enslaved people and work toward ending slavery in Virginia. Coles was one of the few slaveholders who taking the Enlightenment and revolutionary ethos and language to heart and acting upon those lofty principles.
1: Now, as we mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, this is a complicated issue, and we focus today on a very narrow turn of events. When we look at the revolutionary period again, we will take a bigger picture view and look at the events in Virginia in the war and immediately afterwards. Then we will look at how the southern states mimenized further slave resistance Some historians call this Charles Pinckney's counter-revolution and how this impacted the writing of the Constitution. The more we dig into this aspect of American history, the more I realize we are just scratching the surface of a very complicated and confusing subject matter. I, for one, have a lot of reading to do before I can even tackle the above subject matters.
0: If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider subscribing to Banjo Strings and Drinking Gourds wherever you get your podcasts. We bring historical episodes twice a month, And if you're in the area, coming up next on our calendar of events is August 6th is our Harvest Festival. You can come and explore just what harvest meant to our various cultures and time periods here at the museum. There will be a lot of bread being baked that day. And also, every Sunday in August is our Roots Music Festival. So come on down and check that out. Thank you for listening.
1: Thank you for listening.